Good morning. It's great to be with you. Great to be at the Franklin campus. Always beautiful Sunday morning. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. I hope when you were singing, you were singing for joy just now. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully with him with psalms, or literally songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for what it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, worship is an extraordinary privilege we have as followers of Christ. The fact that we can come to a place we can open songs, we can sing them freely, we can pray without fear of persecution, we can hold this book and talk about it. It's, it's a privilege. And I hope when you come uh, to church on a weekend, you kind of help yourself recalibrate the privilege we have as Christians to do this, because not everywhere in the world can do this. Uh, many of our friends around the globe are persecuted for believing this stuff, much less gathering and singing and talking about it. So I hope in the routines of our lives, we don't become um, bored or, or too routine, taking for granted what we have as a great privilege and a great honor to gather. It's, it's a good reminder for me. If you've come to a place in your Christian life, or you've come to Christ, maybe you were young, maybe a teen, maybe an adult, and you trusted in Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him. You believe that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead, and you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. You've confessed him as your Savior. You believe in him. And you've begun this new relationship. You're born again, all that language we use. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, and I, I would hope most in this room, if not all are, but uh, certainly there's some probably here that haven't sorted all that out. That's fine. That's part of your journey as God calls and loves you and woos you. But if you've come to that place in your life where you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you know that you know that you know you're saved, are you still being transformed? Are you still being changed in, from what you were to what you and I need to be? And it's hard to measure, undoubtedly. It's hard to gauge, okay, I'm more like Christ than I was three or four years ago. But it's a good question to wrestle with. Are you being transformed? And then perhaps the follow-up question is, how are you and I transformed? It's pretty ambiguous to say I am being transformed based on certain criteria, but how do you know the means by which, how do you know you are being transformed? And I want you to think through that as we look at this passage today on the transfiguration. And we'll circle back to that question as we close the time. But you and I are looking at a gospel written by Mark, recorded by Mark. It's a short gospel. It's a moving gospel. It has a lot of language that moves the narrative very quickly, very fast-paced. And we're coming down the wire where he'll soon be crucified, and we'll end the book before we know it. Uh, let's do the snapshot of our context today as we look at the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. Now, you remember Jesus had explained to the disciples about the demands of discipleship. Uh, this was not a pleasant picture they were getting exposed to. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be demanding. He also had told them he was going to suffer 
and be handed over and be beaten and mocked and killed, and he would be raised three days later. They didn't like that news very much. Peter rebukes him, in fact. And then Christ rebukes Peter for his rebuke. And this sets up the scene of the transfiguration. John Grasmick writes, A suffering Messiah had important implications for those who followed him. Um, I think we shrink wrap the Christian life in a certain way in our Western way of thinking that we want it to work. And we extricate suffering and problems and difficulties and frustrations from it because we think if then, if we're doing this, then it should work out. That's why the transfiguration has a, a great application for you and me as we think about our transformation. Now, the three are going to see something. They're going to get a glimpse of God's glory in this transfiguration of Jesus. Um, and this is going to be something that they're going to remember the rest of their lives. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. Truly, I say to you. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is a formula. We've talked about this in the past. Sometimes Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. It carries a weight of authority, the way to pay attention, determination. Not that everything Jesus says doesn't have that weight. This is like an added exclamation point. Listen to me. Uh, truly, I'm telling you something. It's an unusual phrase. Some of you won't taste death. It's just an idiom. Meaning some of you won't die before you see this. And the question is, what is the kingdom of God? Some of you aren't going to die until you see the kingdom of God. Now, there are lots of opinions on what Jesus means here, but I'm a real stickler for context. I believe context, looking at what a passage says in the context, covers most questions and most false teaching. <laughs> if we look carefully at what's going on in the context, it covers a multitude of interpretational sins. And this is one that I think is pretty simple. He's saying, in a few days, some of you are going to see the transfiguration. You're going to see a glimpse of glory before you die. Now, there's at least six days, and that's where Mark chapter 9, verse 2 goes, six days later. So we've got at least six, maybe ten days, we don't know precisely. But there's some time period where Jesus makes this statement, some of you won't taste death until you see something. Well, let's look at the transfiguration proper, beginning of verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, all at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now, this is the second time Jesus has pulled Peter, James, and John to see something spectacular. He's taken them away from the crowd. Uh, they're, here they're going to witness the transfiguration. The high mountain that Mark references is not named in the Bible. Uh, that doesn't lead, uh, stop people from making guesses of Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. Uh, it's probably in the Caesarea Philippi area. Luke 9 records that this happens while Jesus is praying. So we get a little more insight than Mark gives us here. 
Uh, verse 2, the second part, he was transfigured before them, is metamorpho, metamorpho in Greek. We bring it to English, metamorphosis. And we all know a caterpillar is a metamorphous illustration because it turns completely into something very different. A tadpole is, trans, is transformed into a frog. They look nothing alike, I mean, very little bit of resemblance, but the idea is a complete transformation. Uh, New Testament Greek scholar Johann Beam writes, the miracle of transformation is from an earthly form into, to, into a supraterrestrial form. An earthly form into a supraterrestrial form is a complete a transformation of what it looks like. It's not just a slight change, not just a makeover, not a new suit of clothes. This is a complete change of appearance, a, a metamorphosis. And it seems only in this passage that Christ is transfigured, not Moses and not Elijah. They have a different role here. Not to bore you with grammar, but if you look at verse 2, it says he was transfigured. It's passive language. And this is important because it happened to him. It's a small detail, but I think it's an important detail. Jesus did not transfigure himself, is what we're meant to see. God the Father is transfiguring him. God the Father is letting Peter, James, and John see something, a glimpse of glory, remarkable that the other disciples don't get to see. And that's going to make a point a little later on when we look at a different passage in a few minutes. So this transfiguration is done to Jesus. Now, the word is used a few more times in the New Testament. Importantly, two passages I'd like you to look at. One is Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and you probably know this verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you know that verse, uh, conformed is the word of a mold. So some of you grew up, your mom had a mold, and she made a gelatin salad, and she poured it in the mold and turned it over, and it always looked like the mold. So that's exactly what the word means. Don't let the world mold you, but be transformed. It's the same word, metamorpho. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the other one. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. Now remember the veil imagery. The veil imagery goes back to Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, and he came down glowing. Remember, it freaked the people out, and he put a veil over his face because it terrified people when they saw him glowing. And so the reference is, with unveiled face, Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 3, beholding as a mirror the glory of God. So there's going to be this transfiguration of the believer. He continues being transformed into the same image from glory, God's glory, to glory, to what we're going to be like as from the Lord, from the Spirit. So you and I are not to be conformed in the mold of the world. We're to be transformed into something we're not. And that is passive language. God's doing that work. This is what's important to keep in mind. It's not you and me doing that work. God is doing that work. But we do have some part to play in it. Now, Jesus becomes literally different. His garments are described as whiter than any launderer could make them, exceedingly white. Those of you in the medical community, the word in Greek is leukos, leukocytes. Leukos is used all the time in medical lingo to describe white or translucent. So his garments are white, they're radiant, and God the Father has given these three disciples a glimpse 
into something no one else has ever seen before. Now, Elijah and Moses appeared, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. Uh, Moses represents the law of God. He was the one who saw God. He spoke to God like a man. He talked to him, had a conversation with him. And he's the one the Jews still revere to this day. Elijah is a bookend. He's the last prophet, we'd say. Maybe not technically chronologically, but he's the last like major big giant prophet who did these remarkable things. So we're given these bookends of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. How often is that phrase used in Pauline language? The law and the prophets. God gave the law to Moses, but the prophets taught the law, warned the people, admonished the people, encouraged the people out of the law. So we've got these bookends around Jesus, the law of God, and then Elijah, the prophet of God. Uh, they are not, as far as I can tell, the text does not say they were transfigured. It just says they're present, they're with him. Now Luke 9.31 records that their conversation had to do with the departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Whenever the Bible has these little cryptic phrases like the road to Emmaus, these conversations, we'd love to, what did Jesus say to those disciples on the road to Emmaus? And people make, stuff, make, up, make up stuff all the time. Um, what happened? What, what did Moses and Elijah talk about to Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool to know? And it dawned on me many years ago, I got more here than I can't figure out right now. Why do I need another two sentences of what happened, you know? It's like, do we really need to know every insight, every conversation? No. What's happening, though, this bookend is the law and the prophets are being demonstrated in a transfigured sense around Jesus to the disciples. Why? Why is he letting them see this? Um, in Luke 9.31, where they speak about his departure, a euphemism for death, so Luke gives us one line that they're talking about, you're going to Jerusalem to die. That'd be a cheery conversation, right? This is a harbinger of the suffering that Jesus is about to endure. Now, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, it's really a question. It's more of a, a comment slash question. You know, people make a statement and then they put it, they accentuate the end of it. Like, oh, we're going to go to lunch this afternoon, right? You know, it's, it's a statement, but it's also a question. That's probably the sense of what Peter is saying here. But I missed this until a few weeks ago, what I'm about to share with you. He asked permission to build three tabernacles, also known as booths or tent. It's reminiscent of the Feast of Tabernacles, same word. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, the Jews assembled and they put lean-tos together and palm fronds. And they basically like a neat, cool camp out during the springtime of the year is what it was. Festivity, get away from work. Uh, we, we talk about getting away Think of that with the religious overtone. You're getting away from the routine as a family of Jews, with a tribe of Jews to celebrate God's provisions. Maybe Peter's concerned about their comfort. Maybe he just wants to hang out, prolong the experience. My sense is Peter, and you know I'm, I'm very careful to be hard on uh, Bible characters because one day we're going to see them. And uh, I don't want to say, you know, unkind things, but Peter, you're an idiot, you know, because uh, I, I love Peter and I love that he said things and asked questions that nobody else said or asked because we learn from that, right? That's the good news. And I, I see a lot of myself in Peter. Having nothing to say, he said something. That's me. And that's really Peter's MO. Um, Mark, 30, uh, Mark 8, 31, we read, going back, he began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I'm suspecting Peter is feeling the weight of that 
And now this glorious transfiguration has occurred. Hey, let's just stay here a while. This end, this reality is a lot better than that bad stuff you were telling us about a little while ago. And that may be a bit of a stretch, but I think context bears out that Peter was probably concerned for that. More interesting to me, though, is the next phrase, for they were terrified. And I'd never really seen this before. The transfiguration freaked out Peter, James, and John. The word terrified wasn't shocked or afraid. They are genuinely, they're trembling in their sandals that what they're seeing. And so that would probably explain Peter's nervous energy. Go, well, let's, let's build three booths. Let's say, I think there's a fear and an excitement going on that's probably commingled. If you and I had a glimpse into the eternal, I think we'd be terrified too. Isn't it interesting? And you know this already. Whenever an angel shows up on the scene, what happens? People are afraid or they try to worship the angel. Well, in Revelation, I love when John sees the angel at Patmos and he says, I fell on my face like a dead man. Uh, when Mary, she's terrified. Joseph is terrified. People see angelic creatures, they're afraid. That's our natural human response, probably because we're sinful around something supernatural. I don't know. But um, we missed this part. The transfiguration scared them. Now, keep this in mind as we continue the story. Verse 7, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. That word's heavy laden too. It's not just a cloud cover came. It's overshadowing the whole experience. So they're terrified, and now a cloud shows up. Are you seeing and hearing some imagery from the Old Testament. So we're meant to lean into that. Now, I want you to hang with me here. There's two passages, Mark 1.11 and Mark 9.7, that are important. Remember we talk about parallelisms and sandwiches in the Gospel of Mark? These are two I want you to see, and I highly encourage you to go study them. Mark 1.11 is, is where Jesus is identified as the Son of God, and Mark 9.7 is what we're looking at today. In Mark 1.11... The voice says, you are my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased. It's directed to Jesus. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. You have the same imagery. The cloud comes down, the voice comes out of the cloud. You are my beloved son, and that's the identification of Jesus as the Son of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune Godhead. In chapter 9, verse 7 the voice is directed not to Jesus, but to Peter, James, and John. Look what it's look in your Bible. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's not just a change of a couple of pronouns. This is very deliberate on God's intent. In chapter 111, he's identifying Jesus. You're my son, and you I'm well pleased. In chapter 9-7, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now listen to him is an imperative command. It has ongoing activity. Not just right now. You keep on listening. You keep on hearing what he said. You keep on listening to all that he taught you. Verse 8, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them ex anymore except Jesus alone. So the transfiguration has diminished. He's back to his normal uh, you know, sandals, his Birkenstocks, whatever he had on, you know, his ephod. He's probably dusty from the trail. He, everything, Moses and Elijah are gone, and the disciples are left with you know, the, the, all the activities over. The cloud's gone, the light's gone, the radiance is gone, and they're by themselves. Now, a couple of things I want you to see here. 
um, this transfiguration ended as quickly as it began. The curtain call happens, they're alone with Christ, and these three eyewitnesses have seen something no one else has seen in all of Jesus' life story. Now, if you have a Bible, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 with me for a couple of minutes. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Now, this is some 28 to 30 years later, Peter is going to write these words. And I want you to hang on, because this to me is gold. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's the first phrase I would encourage you to underline. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made, look, to him. Mark 1.11, the voice says, you are my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased. Peter's reference is when the first occurrence was, it was made the majestic glory, meaning God the Father and the, tri and the Trinity, he made to him, now watch what Peter continues, such an utterance made to to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verbatim. Verbatim the same thing, Mark 1.11. Now, watch. And we, verse 18, ourselves heard this utterance. The this is not going back to what he just referred. It's, the, it's not the antecedent, it's what follows it. It's the next sentence. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They're with him on the holy mountain in the second verse. Do you see what Peter's doing? In one sentence he's saying, in Mark 1.11, God spoke to his son, but we heard it on the holy mountain when he told us, listen to him. Now, not to bore you with too much detail and, and what's called higher criticism, this passage is written at least 28, 30 years after the occurrence. The New Testament probably hasn't even been collated and put together when Peter is writing this. Peter's writing something, let's just call it 30, 30 years later for its round numbers. He's writing 30 years later, telling a story that they were eyewitnesses of. And remember when Jesus says, I'll, you, everything I've, I've told you, you'll remember? All things will come to your knowledge? That was apostolic, not for all of us. So Peter's telling in two sentences the way we would count grammar. And two events that he saw, experienced. One he heard when God said, you're my beloved son. And one he eyewitnessed in God's glory when the transfiguration occurs, and he says, this is my beloved son. Chosen, listen to him, pay attention to him. Might be a little bit stretching for some of us, but I love this kind of stuff. To me, it, it just gives more and more veracity to your Bible. The book you hold is an otherworldly document. This isn't just another book on the shelf. It's an otherworldly document, and it stands the test of critics and time and you need to have confidence that the Bible you hold is God's word. He did not stutter or bobble it or must mess it up, that you're holding the very word of God. This is what he says. This is what he says to you and me. Well, the next part of the passage has to do with the rising from the dead and the personal work of Elijah. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things. 
And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, verse 2, he brought them up on the high mountain, and they're coming down the same. In chapter 111, Jesus, the voice came out of the cloud, and it spoke down to them from heaven. We have all this movement in Mark, these up and down things. They're not just, oh, they went up, they came down. They're intentional, and they're a movement in the gospel to help us understand and feel the action of the story, not only moving uh, the story narrative, but the spiritual movement of the story. Um, This is the last time Jesus will command anyone not to say uh, something. Don't tell them what I did. When he heals the person, don't tell anyone, just go home. Uh, now he's going to tell the disciples, uh, don't tell anyone this, but he gives them a, a qualifier until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So he's giving them a, a little a book stop there, basically saying, look, um, you're, you're, I mean, even in the way Mark records it, what does rising from the dead mean? You know, the disciples don't know what they don't know. But after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to understand things in a new way. That's why Peter can preach a sermon some 50 days later. He's running in terror and denying Jesus. And 50 days later, he's preaching a sermon and thousands come to Christ. He didn't take a a positive mental attitude course. Uh, Something happened to him. It was the Holy Spirit transforming him, transfiguring him into another person and using him for his good. Uh, The discussion of Elijah is a bit complex, and just for brevity, notice two things. Jesus says, Elijah is coming, and then he says, Elijah has come. This is a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Easy to remember. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. I'm not going to expand it. You can look at it on your own. If you've ever done a Seder meal, uh, some Passover meal, some Jews have a cup for Malachi, uh, for Elijah. More than likely, Elijah... Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. More than likely, Jesus is making a reference to John the Baptist, who is a, has a double fulfillment. Last old, first new, and he probably is a parallel of Elijah. What does he do? He's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people way south of Jerusalem. He's telling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's doing the work of a prophet. And when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then he diminishes, right? Because the prophetic role is now done. We don't need it anymore. Messiah's come. The prophet's arrived. The prophet has arrived. And so more than likely, he commingles those two as a double fulfillment. You remember, just as a sidebar, remember Herod, once, when, when, uh, when John the Baptist is around, they fear Elijah has been resurrected. Remember some of these little things clicking in your head? These references have meaning to the Jew. And the most important thing for you to see is their question is that the scribes say Elijah must come first. They're not citing Malachi 4, 5, 6. They're saying there's a popular teaching today among the scribes that Elijah comes before Messiah comes. That's probably what the referent was. And Jesus' point to them is, look, he is going to come, he has come, but that's not the main point of the passage. This is double fulfillment. Well, so what? Let me suggest this. Until we see him clearly, we cannot listen to him fully. 
Until we see him clearly, we cannot listen to him fully. Or said another way, when we see him clearly, we will listen to him fully. In striking the transformation, transfiguration occurs, these three see it. They're still trying to figure it out. But Jesus gives that qualifier until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Then that bookmark, then you'll understand some of these things that right now are confusing to you. Peter is terrified. Peter is afraid. I would suggest we've lost the idea of a holy fear toward God. We've become very chummy with Jesus. One of the reasons, and I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but I've heard a lot of Christian artists over the years talk about Abba and call Jesus Daddy. I'm I'm telling you, as an old guy, I just cringe when I hear that. I just cringe when I hear that. He's not your daddy the way we mean daddy. He's your father. He's your father. And there needs to be not a, not a being afraid of, but a, a little bit of a dose of a holy fear to this Yahweh Elohim, Jesus Christ. A little bit of a fear because all our characters in Scripture are terrified when he shows up. I'm not afraid of him. I'm afraid of the presence of the awful King's English, the awful power of God. Because even though we're saved, even though we're indwelled by his Spirit, I think we mishandle him when we treat him too, too chummy. He's not your pal. He's your God. He's not your buddy. He's your Savior. He's not a guy you hang with. He's a guy you worship. And we've overstated the friend. That, he said he calls us friends. And we are his friends if, what, we obey him. Not hang out and let's have a latte, Jesus. Let's, you know, let's chill together. And I think we have been remit. We're, we're always, every generation is overcompensating for the liabilities of our past. We all do this. None of us ever get it right. And this is one area that's a bit of a soapbox for me. But I, I would encourage you, this is the very word of God. It's not just a suggestion. It's not an idea book. It's not a blog. It's not a tweet. It's not a Snapchat. It's not a post. It's his word. And I think we would do well to have this holy fear about it. Well, until they see him clearly, they're not going to listen to him fully. They've seen a glimpse of his glory, but they don't understand it. They're still scratching. What, what does it mean he's going to rise from the dead? I mean, it's like, hello, McFly, don't you get this part? If you're going to rise from the dead, that sounds pretty simple. He's going to rise from the dead, but they don't know what it means. Don't be too hard on them, nor would you and I. Now, let's put this all together. This passage is about transfiguration. And my question to you and me is, how are you, how am I transformed? And I want you to go again to Romans chapter 12 for a few minutes. Romans chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. As you're finding your way there in your Bible. Um, When Cindy and I were first, the first little church I served in Texas, right out of seminary, I was 28 years old, didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, we were in the small group. And this woman happened to be in the small group who was in her late 60s, early 70s, named Elaine Beekman. Elaine Beekman, Elaine and John Beekman are legends in the translation community. They were SIL Wycliffe missionaries before anyone knew about Wycliffe and SIL. And they went down into deep central Mexico, and they were taking languages that weren't in writing. There was no, no vocabulary, no alphabet, no grammar. 
and they're listening and studying syntactical analysis of verbal language, transferring it into a, into a lettering system, into a word system, into a grammar, into a vocabulary, and then writing uh, grammars for children and eventually translating the New Testament. It used to take about 30 years to do that. You can do it in about 7 to 15 now. And Wycliffe uh, Bible translators have pioneered that along with New Tribes and others. Well, John and Elaine Beekman were some of the earliest missionaries to do this. And she happened to be in our group. Her husband had passed away, and he was a genius in syntax. He was the guy who could go into these cultures and develop formulas for syntactical analysis. How do you listen to something that's never been written? And move it from that to that whole process. It's a big science. And so uh, he was a legend in that regard. Well, Elaine is this remarkable woman. I think they had five or six children. I knew several of her kids. Um, they were all super, just neat people. And Elaine was one of those people you meet that just glowed godliness. I mean, you know, silver hair, uh, always, always dressed neatly, never ostentatious, just radiated beauty, and not beauty the way we value, but just this beautiful person. She was a remarkable woman. She never said anything negative about anybody, never criticized, never, it was just unreal to be around her, just the kindest, sweetest, godliest woman. And uh, at one time, her, her son Tom was telling me a story because she was in our small group. I go, Tom, your mom is just amazing. And we were talking about her, and he said, I think the worst thing she's ever said was like, oh, hat pins and handkerchiefs. <laughs> I guess that's like the cuss language in King James. I don't know. Hat pins and handkerchiefs. You know, that, that was like the worst thing she ever said or did. And as we got to know Elaine, I asked her one time, I said, Elaine, you know, not to sound sappy, but how did you become such an incredibly transformed believer? This is real. This is who you are. And she said, and I can't remember if it was seventh grade or seven years old. My mind is mushy. But she said, someone challenged me to memorize Romans chapter 12, and I memorized the chapter. And I've been trying to live Romans chapter 12 ever since. Well, right away, Cindy and I went home and began memorizing Romans chapter 12. And I would commend that to you as well. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice. You're acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed, don't be put into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that, explanation or or a, a, a continuation of, so that you may prove that which is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And on it goes, and I challenge you to memorize it. But knowing that, what, what is transformation in this passage? Renewing your mind. Transformation is to renew your mind. And the rest of the chapter explains, don't think the way you ought to think. Don't overinflate yourself. And if I was to write a, a paraphrase, I would put a parenthesis and don't think lower of yourself. Don't overinflate yourself and don't debase yourself, but have sound judgment of who you are and how God made you. Don't think higher. Don't think lower. And then he says, renew your brain. So thinking is a motivation here. If you want to be transformed, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by renewing your mind. Think differently. Christianity is a thinking person's faith, not a Pavlovian. It's just there. I should believe it and obey it. Now, 
How many of you remember slide projectors with carousel trays? Most of you. Uh, if you've never seen one, just take, take it by faith. Uh, before we had all this great digital technology, we had slide projectors, and they had, I think, 64 or 128 trays you put slides in. And you would go, chicka-chicking, 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 and look at these slides. And you would be invited to somebody's house after their vacation to Hawaii, and chicka-chicking, chicka-chicking, chicka-chicking. And if you had money, you had a dissolve unit. That was, that was the cat's meow, baby. Because then you could have two slide projectors, and you go chicka-cha-ching, and the picture would dissolve in and out. Chicka-cha-ching. It's a feature in all the pro presenter now. We don't think about it. It's just transitions. But back in the old days with cables and no remotes, it was chicka-cha-ching, chicka-cha-ching, chicka-cha-ching. You have a wedding. You show your wedding pictures. You pull out a carousel. You put it on chicka-cha-ching, chicka-cha-ching. I want you to think about those images projected on a screen of your first birthday, of your first bike, your favorite Christmas, your first puppy, your first cat, God bless you, um, <laughs> high school graduation, prom, college graduation, marriage, first baby, ka-ching, 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 you got those images in your head, we all do. I, there's certain pictures of, of my firstborn daughter, first pictures of our first adopted daughter. I mean, the, I got images, ching ching they're there, I know them, you know them in your life story, they're in your mind. Here's the goal. You've got to take some of those slides out of the slide tray and put some new slides in them. Because the way we ought to think is different than the way we do think. And we've got to realign them. I don't know what your slides need to be, but one of my slides is I'm completely forgiven. He loves me regardless. I don't have to be a better Christian. I just have to follow Jesus. One of my slides, don't let the world teach you theology. One of my slides, just do the next thing. One of my slides, will you serve your Savior or will you serve yourself? Chicka-cha-ching, chicka-cha-ching, chicka-cha-ching. What do you got in your slide tray? You see, you can only be transformed if you see him clearly and listen to him fully. The primary verb in this passage, I would stress, is listen to him. Which ties in beautifully with transfiguration. You get a glimpse of glory. Transformation, how are you transformed? You and I are to be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ than we used to be. How are you transformed? You just wait for him to transform you? No. Paul says, renew your mind. Renew your mind. Think differently. Because the slide trays, they're there. They're cast they don't change. My dad took a lot of print photographs, boxes of them years ago when he passed away. And seven years now, I went down to Houston and we were throwing everything out. And I got a shoebox full of pictures from, they took black and white pictures back in the 20s in my family system on my dad's side. A boxes of these pictures. And my intent was to put them together for my kids with little books to give them to them, which they're still in the box. Um, but all that to say is, I, the other day I was showing one of my daughters some of the pictures. And some of them were when she was a little girl in these other group shots that my dad had taken at various times over the 32 years of their lives. And she Oh, I remember that. I remember that. Chicka-ching, chicka-ching, chicka-ching. What are you going to do to change that? That's your and my cooperation, if you will. So, boy, it gets real basic, doesn't it? Are you, are you reading this every day? Got to get a new slide. And you got to put it in your head. 
And it's got to be as memorable as those images you have. Or you won't be transformed. You'll be conformed to your world, to your current world, to the pressures around us, to accepting the lies of the culture, which are more egregious than ever, and in contrary with God's word. You want to line up with the world? You're on your own. You want to line up with him? You'll be transformed. You cannot see him clearly unless you're listening to him fully. Why did they ask dopey questions? Because they weren't listening to him fully. They didn't have the capacity because they didn't have the spirit. You do. If you trusted Christ. As I began, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, he lived, he died, was buried, came back from the dead. If you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, then you know that you know you're saved. Then you're in good shape. Now it's will you live in that way. There's probably no better illustration of this, of course, than baptism. Because baptism is that confirmatory reminder that a person made that profession of faith and he or she then by obedience said, I will follow Christ. I will transform my mind. And some of you may have missed the precious time we had here not long ago. So we want to show you a reminder of that. And to me, this is a perfect illustration of what it means to be transformed. A person who says, yeah, I believe this. Now I have to think differently. Let's watch and remember these transformations. 